Hello and welcome to Amplify. That's Glore by composer Anne Clear, performed by baritone Gavin Ring and pianist Louise Thomas. And it's one of 50 songs composed using Irish texts for the Irish Language Art Song Project, which was launched last month. We'll hear about this project later in the podcast, and we've an interview with Orla Shannon, a PhD student and the Contemporary Music Centre's first scholar-in-residence about her research into 20th century Irish composers Ina Boyle and Joan Trimble. I'm Jonathan Grimes and I'm joined by CMC director Yvonne Ferguson. Hiya, Jonathan. How's it going? So we begin, Yvonne, with the Huddersfield Contemporary Music Festival and Anne Clearer, whose song we just heard, was featured in the opening concert of this festival. You travelled over to attend this opening concert uh, last weekend, didn't you? I did, Jonathan. I travelled over for the first weekend of the Huddersfield Contemporary Music Festival 2019 and especially to celebrate the fact that Anne Clear had a portrait concert in the opening evening of the festival. And we had the great honour of hosting the opening reception uh, in the festival and that was in association with the Music and Media Technologies Masters at Trinity College Dublin and also with support to Anne Clear from the Professional Artist Support Scheme at Offaly County Council Arts Office and I was also invited as a delegate by the British Council. So it was wonderful to collaborate with the festival on the opening reception to celebrate the Portrait Concert. It gave us an opportunity to really raise the profile of contemporary music from Ireland among the national delegates and among the international delegates because Huddersfield and the British Council, I think they invite over 40, 50 international delegates to the festival. So we really had an opportunity there to raise the profile. The concert itself was really special, Jonathan. Two UK premieres for Anne Clear, which was uh, wonderful and a very fine performance by the Riot Ensemble and uh, a really great relationship between Anne Clear and the ensemble. I had a chance to to chat to their conductor and artistic director, Aaron, over the weekend as well. And uh, I think both Anne and the ensemble feel a, a great affinity. So you spoke to Graham McKenzie the festival's artistic director, while you were there. And we're going to hear from him in a moment. What did you ask him about? Well, you know, this is Graham's, I think, 13th festival as artistic director, Jonathan. And uh, at the opening reception, he talked about the fact that, in his opinion, it's a kind of a golden generation of Irish composers. So I began by sort of teasing that out a little bit the next morning with him. I think it is a, a, a very uh, fertile period, really, uh, for composers uh, in Ireland at the moment. It seems that, you know, for a long time, if I had thought of contemporary voices from Ireland, I would be thinking Jennifer Walsh. And, and then, you know, there might be one or two others, but maybe I'd struggle beyond that. Uh, but as I said last night, I think there's a moment 
you find often in, in countries, uh, particularly smaller uh, nations, where there's suddenly a, a surge of talent comes through and you have this uh, golden generation, as it's often called in football. But I was using it last night in the context of uh, composers. And I think Ireland has that at the moment with a number of really very interesting voices. And I've seen it in, in different countries and different nations. And some really take advantage of the situation. And others, I feel, don't and let it slip. And Yeah, you were warning us. Warning us well. I was warning you to not to... Yeah, because I think it really can make a, whole, a lot of difference to how the world perceives that nation, really. A classic example is Norway where uh, you had the generation of, uh, in jazz, particular people like Jan Garbarek, Jan Balk, and a whole uh, range of Norwegian artists that were picked up by ECM label. And Norway then, I think, as a nation, thought, well, we've got all this talent, and, and they adopted a very clear strategy about export. And I think what you've seen from that is that uh, because there was a lot of support to export uh, Norwegian culture. There was a, a surge of interest worldwide. And then, you know, that's filtered down the generations. It's inspired uh, younger artists to think more globally about their work from the beginning of their careers. And I think, you know, you have an opportunity in Ireland, I think, to do that now. Because there's always been this kind of thing, you know, which I guess is the historical context of... Irish composers working in America. You know, there's, this, there's still this big migration. I mean, the Scots and the Irish are great migrants, yes. yeah? But it seems to me that, you know, there's an opportunity uh, now with the current generation, this, this generation of, of Irish composers, to actually look beyond the UK, look beyond the US, and, uh, and take perhaps their work, your culture, to, to, to areas that, that perhaps Irish music's not often seen or heard in. You know, that, that does involve uh, having, a, having a, a, a strategy of support to export culture as well, because you are also in a marketplace where there are countries like Norway and other countries that put a lot of money into supporting their artists and their culture to export their work. Uh, the UK, I think, suffers greatly from not doing that. There's this kind of slight fudge of, you know, is it the British Council responsibility, is it the... The Arts Council responsibility, there's not that dedicated uh, export office, and I think both those organisations do what they can. You're competing against countries and nations who are very strategic about how they do it. But there is a real opportunity. You've got the talent and you've got the voices, and I think you've got the originality in those voices to take that music to the world, really. And uh, as I said last night, you shouldn't miss that opportunity. We heard a very original voice last night mm. in Anne Clear's work. Yeah. And uh, as we've all recognised, a huge year for Anne and really yeah. this international recognition that's been building over the yeah. 10 years, yeah. coming to, I suppose, its kind of pinnacle uh, in February when she was awarded the first yeah. Irish composer to be yeah. awarded there in Spon Siemens and uh, various 
wonderful things that have happened with it. A portrait concert mm. music fabric, mm. I think a DVD um, of her works yeah. coming out uh, as a result of the of the Composer Prize. And um, I was interested when you were speaking about her work that mm. uh, I suppose she really had such an impact when her works were performed yeah. in 2017 yeah, yeah, at the yeah. festival. Yeah, no, absolutely. But I think because it really took me by surprise because I, I, you know, as I said last night, it was unfortunate circumstances, but... Uh, there was a cancellation of a piece we'd commissioned and uh, and, and the ensemble, Nikel, uh, said they had this piece by uh, by Anne Clare and uh, and yeah, I said, okay, you know. Um, and it really did have an impact and the audience reaction was very instant, I think, to it as well. It was down in Bates Mill Blending Shed. And uh, and so that made me sit up and notice and, and then to look at, uh, at trying to discover uh, more about her, her work. Uh, and talked to musicians who had who had worked with her as well, and 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 they were very positive, not just about the music, but her approach and 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 the way that she worked with ensembles and musicians. Um, I suppose thinking about the history of the festival, mm. Graham, and you know commissioning is so key to your whole philosophy around yeah. the festival. Commissioning, you were co-commissioning with other festivals. Um, I suppose working with ensembles to develop. Yeah. compositional talent yeah. to enable them yeah. to work with composers and uh, it's wonderful to see that that's just so mm. central mm. to your vision mm. every year I think what we like to do is, is develop partnerships, you know that's a key word uh, for us and I think you know you look at festivals around the world and I think uh, there are some festivals that really need to develop partnerships and there are other festivals perhaps that are well funded and can afford to stand alone uh, we're in the UK, so we are not well funded, and uh, and so for us, the the lifeblood of the festival is developing those partnerships, and uh, and I think that's very healthy as well because, you know, I I think for so many years, you know, there wasn't really any repertoire built with contemporary music because uh, directors and festival programmers were very concerned about having the world premiere. And rather than doing other art forums where from the beginning of the creative idea you would try and find other partners who would present the work, it seemed to me in contemporary music it was very kind of, no, we want the world premiere. And, uh, mm -hmm. and very often then there was all this music that was commissioned and performed once and maybe twice if you were lucky. And, you know, and the first performance of a work is often not the best work either. So... Uh, for the reasons of finance, to make it affordable to commission new work, it was important we identified uh, partners to do that with us. And, and perhaps more importantly, you know, I really don't like to commission a new work unless I've got four or five performances of that work, uh, usually around four or five different countries. And so about, you know, maybe about 10 years ago, we started really uh, working with British Council in this delegate programme and talking quite openly about the, the opening weekend of the festival being not just a place to hear great music, but a place to do business and to invite people from all over the world in the industry. And that was very deliberate so that we could begin to identify potential partners that we could co-commission with, we could tour work around. And, uh, you know, and, and that way it makes it affordable for everybody to do that. Plus there's a whole win... Uh, for the artists because they know when they're starting out to write the work they've got five performances in five countries Absolutely. and that's a, a far uh, you know more rewarding experience for them than 
than having a world premiere and, and one performance and, and, and that's it. So this idea of partnership is, is really important uh, to us. I also felt that the festival, while it was really well networked, you know, perhaps was, was quite passive in those networks in the past in the sense that it brought a lot of work to the UK but it perhaps didn't do enough, in my opinion, to uh, use its uh, profile to develop opportunities for younger generation British artists to take their work into new territories. That's Graeme McKenzie. And Yvonne, you also recorded some other interviews during your time at the festival, which we'll hope to put up on the website shortly. Yeah, I spoke with John Godfrey, who's Artistic Director of Quiet Music Ensemble, also in the Department of Music in Cork. And I suppose I wanted him to respond to this idea as well of the golden generation of Irish composers. Um, he being so embedded in the contemporary music scene for so many years, Jonathan. And uh, also took the chance to chat to Aaron Holloway-Nam, who's the artistic director and conductor of the Riot Ensemble, about this artistic affinity that they feel with Anne Clear. And I also spoke with Anne Clear, the composer herself, about how she felt the concert had gone on Friday evening. Great. So check out our website, cmc.ie, for those interviews. They'll uh, hopefully be posted shortly. Next, writing for voice using Irish language texts. And the Irish Language Art Song Project is the brainchild of Dorina Nivara, a cellist and conductor originally from Cork. Dorina set out on this project to grow the repertoire of Irish language art songs, of which, surprisingly, there have not been many written. She came to us in CMC in the very, very early stages of this project, didn't she, Yvonne? Yeah, she did, Jonathan. And, uh, you know, it's a particular pleasure, I think, always to be part of a project from the outset. I'm sure you, you probably feel the same when ideas are being discussed and a plan is being formed. And that's how it was for us at CMC with the Irish Language Arts Song Project. And Darren and John used to visit us with updates over many years when they were trying to find funding. And, and I suppose you and I always assuring them that when the time would come, CMC would be willing, ready and able to host the related materials of 50 songs in the Irish language scores, recordings, translations, pronunciations. Yeah, so it was it was quite a quite an ambitious project, quite a, a detailed project, and and I yeah I agree with you. It was it was a great uh, thing to be involved in. So I spoke to her about the background of the project back in September, and she started by telling me why this project was so important to her. I've been living in Canada for the last 25 years and my husband, John Hess, pianist, teaches at Western University outside of Toronto. He thought on one of our visits to Ireland that he would go into the Irish Contemporary Music Centre and find Irish art song. And what he meant by that was Irish art song composed by Irish composers. So he spent a whole day in the library going through everything and he found an awful lot of music and intended to bring it back to Canada and then at the very end he just threw out this sentence and he said and by the way there there were maybe 17 art songs there in the Irish language and I was absolutely shocked 
first and foremost because there was such a small number. And then I was disappointed in myself and deeply ashamed because I, I felt that I could have done something about that small number 25 years ago when I lived here because I was brought up speaking Irish in Cork and I loved the language. Even being in Canada for so long, I always felt very Irish and was very attached to Irish culture. And uh, But I'd, I started thinking about it and I thought that in Irish classical music, there's hardly anything in the Irish language. Of course, Sean O'Reilly thought about it. When the Irish state was founded, the government at the time, what they promoted was Irish traditional music and GAA, of course, which they should. And I suppose classical music at the time was the province of the more wealthy. And I thought that it was probably the psychological blow of colonisation. It changes your mindset. And um, it's not that people wanted to do something about it and didn't. It's just that that's just what happens when you've been colonised for so long. Anyway, that's my take on it. It's interesting because, you know, hear, hearing you talk there, um, from my experience of looking back over the archive of RTE recordings that would have been made by Irish composers in the 1950s, and, you know, RTE used to record vast, you know, hours upon hours of programmes, uh, that was a lot of which was was uh, targeted towards very generalist, non-specialist audiences. You mentioned Sean O'Reilly. You also had a composer called Eamon O'Gallagher, who was a composer from Dundalk, and he composed a lot of stuff using Irish, if I remember correctly. But he was very much on the outside of you know, what would have been considered uh, the serious composing, you know, community, which was predominantly, I have to say, Anglo-Irish. So maybe that's that's one of the reasons why it, it composers didn't use Irish. Maybe so. There were also others like Shorsha Bodley, who certainly composed a lot in the Irish language. And Mr. Larche, I can't remember his... John F. John F. Larche. You know, having worked, I suppose, in classical music in Ireland... And having been an Irish speaker, but you did, when, when the Irish language approached classical music, you did look, even as a speaker, you looked at it and you thought, gosh, what's that doing here? It didn't seem to have any place in, in classical music. But I think also there were other things attached to the Irish language. You know, there was that history of poverty. There were things like that associated with the Irish language. So there weren't good associations. So I think there, there was quite a lot there, whereas... I think now, in 2019, and just coming back to live in Ireland this year, I look around and I see all the Gwail Scullina and I see a new kind of appreciation for the Irish language. Maybe we're just now arriving at the point in history, just after 100 years, where we're able to look at something like that, look at the Irish language with more love than we used to look at it in the past. Did you find with the the composers that you um, you commissioned were mostly 
comfortable with the idea of of uh, of using the Irish language, and and if not, what 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 were the sort of things that you did to sort of in, in, in engender that to sort of comfort? Them. Yeah, yeah. I have to say, all twelve composers that we asked, they were all extremely keen to to write art song in the Irish language. The assistance we were able to give them was that e- for all the texts in Irish that they chose we recorded all the texts so that they could listen to them repeatedly and they could hear where the stresses were in the language. And we also gave them word for word translation, English translation of the text, because, of course, as they're composing, it's not enough just to have a general sense of the sentence. They need to know what each word exactly means. Were there any particular challenges that the composers faced when it came to working with the Irish text or is it just simply the same as approaching any other text that you know language that they don't happen to speak? I don't think there were any challenges after we provided the resources. I think it would have been a huge challenge for them to to write the songs without assistance you know without recording the songs or without doing the word for word translation. Talk to me a little bit about how you deal with the the phonetics of the language, uh, yeah. the the I, the IPA. IPA. When I think of IPA, I think of something else. But um. yes, I know IPA ale, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. The thing is, for classical singers, when they sing other languages like German or Italian or Czech, for example, Czech is a good example because. Of course, many opera singers, they don't speak Czech, you know, as a daily language. So how do they sing in a language like that? So a lot of scores have IPA, which is International Phonetic Alphabet Pronunciation Guides in them. They're all symbols for different sounds. And so they're under all of the words so that they can see how the words are pronounced. And there's somebody who lives in Dublin, called Breed Ni Ruagoin. She's an, a, a wonderful Irish speaker. So she came on board the project. And when the composers were finished, she created IPA, International Phonetic Alphabet Pronunciation Guide for all the poetry. And that's in the scores. And she also created a word for word English translation. Once the Irish language goes outside of Ireland in a music score, it's just impossible for people to pronounce it unless they speak Irish. And what's your hope for the legacy of this project? In very ordinary terms, I hope that the legacy is that Irish singers and singers around the world start singing art song in the Irish language and that it's not a weird thing. I want it to be normal. I suppose I have a very emotional connection to this language. When I think of the history of the Irish language, when I think of the beauty, when I think of the literature of the Irish language, it's, you know, this Irish language, it's a living thing.
with the composers each of the texts that they chose. I read these texts and I cry. This is what the Irish language is to me in the literature. And of course, when you hear it being spoken, it's incredibly musical and beautiful and there are so many consonants and it's so gorgeous. And I think all of the composers were, were, I don't want to say surprised at that, but that certainly informs your writing, I believe, when you're composing a piece. Turning to your own background and your own experience as, as a musician, uh, you mentioned leaving Ireland 25 years ago and you're, you're coming back. Maybe briefly describe your, 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 your background up to, uh, to, this, to this point, how you got to here. I came to Dublin when I was very young. I was 17 when I left Cork. So I was in the symphony orchestra for 18 years as a cellist. And uh, for two of those years, I had gone away to study cello to, to different countries. And um, I enjoyed my time in the symphony orchestra it was v- very much. It was an amazing place at the time. I'm sure it still is. And then I met a young and handsome Canadian guy and moved to Toronto in 1994. And in Toronto, we founded a chamber opera company that would specifically commission and produce new Canadian chamber opera. So that's what I've been doing. I I ran the company and conducted performances. And I suppose principally what we did was put new Canadian music on the map and certainly new Canadian chamber opera because it didn't really have a profile when I went to Canada first. And I was really surprised because when I lived in Ireland, I didn't really know anything about new music in Canada. I didn't know that much about Canada. Uh, But anyway, when I went there, I discovered all these fantastic composers. And at the time, opera companies in Canada weren't programming new opera because they were they had this old fashioned thinking that if they programmed new opera, nobody would come to it. And I thought, of course, that was complete rubbish because I think audiences are cannot be underestimated. I think audiences know very well if something is good or not. Just don't under, don't, don't, what, what word am I trying to find? Don't, um, don't underestimate your don't, audience. Don't underestimate don't your patronize audience. Don't patronise them. Don't patronise them ever. So that's what we did for 20 years. We commissioned new opera. And so we put that on the map and then we started touring this Canadian chamber opera and went to quite significant venues. San Francisco Opera, Philadelphia Opera, the Holland Festival, etc., etc., etc. So that's what we did. And then five years ago, I started getting homesick and uh, knew that I would be returning to Ireland. Said as much to my Canadian husband, <laughs> and, uh, and he was more than happy to move back to Dublin with me. I think it's from living abroad. You have a very good perspective on the place that you came from. And you start gaining great perspective on the language, on the culture, on what's on what you think Ireland has to offer. And I mean, when I went to Canada in 1994, if I said the word Ireland, a lot of people would look at me and say, where is that? And then fast forward to 2016 and you say the word Ireland and everybody starts smiling because now everybody knows where Ireland is and 
it has a very warm place in people's hearts. I could see this, you know, transformation over 20 years. So I had a lot of time to think about Ireland and what it meant to other people in the world. And uh, thinking about the culture, the language, I thought, my God, we have this amazing language. We have an amazing culture. And it just I just grew to appreciate it more and more and more. What are the differences that you notice now in terms of Ireland and its its musical life, if you want to focus specifically on that, compared to when you left 25 years ago, good and bad? Well, when I left 25 years ago, everything was centred in Dublin. And, and I knew that really intensely, being from outside of Dublin. And uh, so there was Dublin and then there was down the country or up the country. And that was it, really. And of course, I've been watching the progression of everything over the last 25 years. And it's astonishing to me how much Ireland has changed, how many festivals there are. There are all over the place, Donegal, Sligo, Kerry, you know, every weekend there's a different festival. And also new music festivals in different parts of the country. I think that's fantastic. You know, I can't think of anything negative at the moment, but what I'm counselling myself is just don't go back to small world thinking to keep thinking with a big perspective and keep thinking of the long view. If you want to do something, just go and do it and just step over the rubbish and the crap. That's Darna Nivara, and you can find out more about the Irish Language Art Song Project at cmc.ie forward slash Irish Art Song. From newly composed songs by Irish composers, we move to discussing songs from the early part of the 20th century by Irish women composers Ina Boyle and Joan Trimble, along with CMC's Scholar-in-Residence Orla Shannon. Orla Shannon has been CMC's Scholar-in-Residence for the past year. This was a new initiative for us at CMC, which we intend to continue, and we aim to really increase the engagement of a PhD scholar whose focus is on contemporary music from Ireland with our collection and with the expertise of the CMC team. And Orla's research is focusing on four women composers, so it's very important research at the moment. And I think we were very lucky with Orla, Jonathan, because uh, it's quite unique to have a, a PhD scholar, a musicologist, very high level, but also a wonderful soprano performer. That's right, yeah. I was talking to her about about the relationship between those two things and, and how one complements the other. And I think this uh, initiative is, is a great one because much of our work is about dealing with the present, what's happening with uh, composers today. We were talking earlier in the podcast about Anne Clear's portrait concert in Huddersfield and, and the, the, the state of Irish composers now in 2019 from Graeme McKenzie's interview. 
But what is also very important for us is looking back. And this kind of initiative allows us to look deeper into the collection and surface a lot of work that has been done. Uh, and in particular, in this interview that you're going to hear, Orla talks about her research into Ina Boyle and Joan Trimble. So let's have a listen to this now. research I've been particularly looking at Ina Boyle and Joan Tremble as two examples and these seem to be two contrasting figures for Joan Tremble she was a married woman and led a very busy life um, she was actually married to a medical practitioner and she acted as his secretary and was pretty much left to carry out all the domestic household tasks and raise their three children with little to no help. Ina Boyle, on the other hand, was somebody who'd grown up in Enniscary, County Wicklow. She had um, very limited opportunities for listening to music live, um, particularly orchestral works. So it seemed quite an unusual environment for her to compose. Um, I suppose for both composers, commonalities and obstacles they faced throughout their career would have been the, the onset of um, the Second World War in particular for both um, composers. I think, to put it plainly, uh, the role of wifehood and motherhood in the 20th century and the expectation that a woman would uh, give up their career to aid the household and this was very much an expectation um to uh, to point to a, a third composer i know in the case of elizabeth mcconkey that she'd been denied a scholarship to go to the royal college of music in london because one of the the men in the the interview room had said well is there kind of a purpose in giving a scholarship to a woman who will just eventually grow up and get married? Um, there is certainly evidence of this. Similarly, Boozy and Hawks would have denied women um, permission to publish large-scale orchestral works, and I believe the quote was perhaps a few songs. So it's <laughs> so this is, I suppose, why in their compositional output we see a lot more vocal works. Um, Ina Boyle being quite the exception, who was quite radical in being the first Irish woman to ever compose a symphony, a concerto, a ballet. But this was not the norm for women composers during the 20th century in Ireland. So the expectation was that they should be writing smaller chamber-based works, yes. such as songs, which are, you know, yes. traditionally have this association with the parlor and, you know, as exactly. opposed to large-scale orchestral works, which were seen more as the preserve of their male counterparts. Yes, and you've just said it. I think this isn't just specifically um, something that's arisen during the 20th century. It, it dates back to, you know, Clara Schumann, all this, where the salon particularly was a space for women to perform works and smaller scale works. So I think it's more 
something that's emerged out of European trends um, and that has filtered through. So tell me more about this research. My research specifically looks at the underrepresentation of Irish female composers within the canon of 20th century Irish art music, uh, specifically looking at the, the kind of habitual gender gap that has emerged in Ireland's um, canon of art song. So I'm looking at multi-movement vocal works of Irish female composers. So I'm particularly looking at their compositional voices um, from the perspective of the feminist musicologist, particularly looking at these women's identities contemporaneously with their male counterparts. So it's not just specifically women's works alone. I'm particularly looking at this uh, from this perspective to uncover why these women's works have been overlooked in Ireland's existing canon of art song. And hopefully by reappraising their their works that we can try and rehabilitate women composers in this canon and, as I say, provide some role models which don't seem to be there from the 20th century. I think there's a a change at the minute, but um, from the 20th century, there's certainly a, a gender misbalance there that needs to be addressed. So you mentioned that there were very contrasting uh, people from, from, from very different backgrounds. They both spent time in London, didn't they? They did indeed. So Joan Trimble, after finishing her studies in Trinity College, she was actually selected to do the piano solos in Count John McCormick's Farewell Tour in, I believe it was 1936. And this was kind of the source of influence for Joan Trimble to move to London. So she would have studied piano lessons with Arthur Benjamin there and he would have encouraged herself and her sister Valerie to pursue this career as a a piano duet. And this, of course, led to very busy broadcasts with the BBC and concerts. In terms of her compositional training, she would have initially studied with Herbert Howells and then later Ralph Vaughan Williams. Whereas Ina Boyle, on the other hand, didn't live in London and she made periodic visits to London for lessons with um, Vaughan Williams also. And he became both a source of personal and professional support to Boyle. He um, would have endorsed a lot of her work. He would have written letters on her behalf to influential conductors and whoever else. It didn't seem to have an awful lot of impact on the the circulation of her works, unfortunately. In terms of their approach to art song, how would you describe their approach? Well, I think this is a very interesting question because... I would argue to some extent that their work was quite conservative for their time when we consider the turn of uh, the uh, the Second World War and the kind of emergence of serialism and whole tone scales and this kind of abandonment of uh, tonal structures as we would have previously known them. We kind of see such a difference with these uh, women composers who, in the case of Ina Boyle and Joan Trimble, we kind of see how they were still very much embedded in tonality and both having drawn influence from Vaughan Williams and this kind of um, embrace of pastoralism in their works and modality and modal scales and this sort of um, harmonic framework, which I think shapes an awful lot of their music. Comparing and contrasting the situation with today, Mm -hmm. there seems to be more of an interest now in music of this era and specifically composers such as Ina Boyle. Why do you think that this is the case? 
I think it's perhaps um, a knock-on effect from the rise of feminism, maybe in the 70s, to think of this very broadly. We see the rise of first waves, uh, feminism, second wave, and all the rest of it. And perhaps particularly in Ireland, where we had the movement in theatre, where we had Waking the Feminists as the first kind of questioning of gender as a a kind of issue or an imbalance which we wouldn't necessarily have identified as a problem in Ireland up until the the end of the 20th century and I think to some degree music has just followed suit with this music or with this movement should I say Um, when we see the the fabulous work being conducted by the sounding the feminists I think it seems to be more of a a kind of a, a social investigation into gender issues within the discipline. I would also have to note, of course, Isha Bosang uh, being one of the forerunners for spearheading the revival, particularly on Ina Boyle. So I think it's just been an interest which has stemmed out of a wider issue for gender studies on a whole in Ireland. I suppose my main observation as a soprano um, soloist is that a lot of the works composed by these women composers tend to have been written for mezzo-soprano or for contralto. So in order for me to perform the works, I've ended up having to transpose a lot of their music. um, And of course, the difficulty alone as a performer in accessing their scores is quite difficult because a lot of their music exists only as original copies in pencil. Um, Ina Boyle's um, extant of which um, exists in Trinity College um, and Joan Trimble's, which is largely in the National Library of Ireland. Um, but that's changing a lot, it's yes. in particular with, the, with Ina Boyle in terms of, you know, that's all part of the the project to revive her music that Absolutely. access was a big was, was a big issue and you mentioned Ita Bozang and she was instrumental uh, in, in 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 you know obtaining copies and and getting it from Trinity College yes. manuscript department and and there is but there's been various projects in terms of typesetting the music and making critical editions, which is a Absolutely. big part of, of, of making all of this yes. music more accessible. Yes, one of which I'm involved with myself. Um, and I think this is definitely the, the kind of issue for the performers and the idea behind conducting research um, such as my own here is that we put these kind of pencil markings into legible notation which a performer can pick up and ideally use. So hopefully in highlighting these issues that we can invite more choral directors and conductors to think more critically about the gender representation of their own concert programmes and maybe in providing such scores that we can uh, kind of hopefully have more equality in the the general day-to-day programme Um programming of concerts for Ina Boyle her 
compositional output consists of over 70 songs, whereas for Joan Trimble, she has one song trilogy, one song cycle, and um, her opera for television, Blind Raftery. So even before we look at anything else, there's a huge difference in the amount of output that they've both produced. As we say, Joan Trimble having led such a busy career um, in other projects outside of being a composer, and Dina Boyle, who'd dedicated her life to composing with little success. She wrote 70, 70 songs, um, but the quality of those songs is very variable, isn't it? Yes, and this has been debated that her earlier works, well, for, for me myself in analysing them, I've noticed that the earlier works aren't necessarily as well constructed as those in her kind of later output. Her later works tend to better represent her her output than her earliers. Do you think, from what you've read of her correspondence and what you know mm-hmm. of Ina Boyle, do you think she'd be happy with the emphasis on getting all her works out there? Or would she have wanted to be a little bit more selective in terms of what's made available? Very interesting question. I think that she would like her works to be performed because she was so relentless in having her works sent to choral directors and publishers and that in spite of the rejection and negative critiques she would have received, she would still just turn to the next publisher and continue on her kind of calling. So for that reason, I would think that she would like more of her works published Ina Boyle is quite a controversial character for me in terms of her personality because on one hand she seemed quite obedient and um, passive whereas in spite of all this rejection that she faced she was never deterred from sending scores to choral directors and publishers and she seemed so resilient in other ways um, which seems to kind of contradict the way in which people would have perceived her at the time. Orla Shannon, a CMC's scholar-in-residence, discussing her very important PhD research about the uphill battle of women composers in the early 20th century and, I suppose, exposing that hidden history in her PhD. Yes, and you can find more on these composers on our website, cmc.ie. And uh, Ina Boyle also has a website where there's uh, regularly updated information on news and events because it's quite a a renaissance of her works and a concerted uh, effort to push those those works out there. International interest really in those works now Jonathan over the last few years. So that is inaboyle.org That's all from this episode of Amplify. Please like and subscribe on our website cmc.ie forward slash amplify on SoundCloud we're at CMC Ireland or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember to drop us a line with any feedback on this or any of the previous episodes by emailing amplify at cmc.ie.